Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the first part of a two-episode story on bike sharing in China. Until recently, this fast-growing sector was dominated by two players, the yellow-colored Ofo bike and the orange-colored Mobike. Today's show is on Ofo, how it came to be, who are the people behind it, and most importantly, what's happening now. If you've been paying attention to the news, there's pretty much constant coverage of Ofo pulling out of international markets and rumors of its impending death, at least as an independent entity. Those rumors have been circling for a long time. What happened here? It seems but a few years ago that it was an experiment on the Peking University campus. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. That was actually less than three years ago. But it's been a crazy journey since then. Let us share with you how it happened. The president's key economic team goes to China. Uh, after a whole night thinking, I say, I still want to do it. Hi, everyone. We're Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily, powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. We are a new weekly podcast focused on giving you a peek into what's buzzing within the tech community in China. We uncover and contextualize unique insights, perspectives, and takeaways on headline tech news that don't always make it into English language coverage. Tech Buzz China is a part of Pandaily.com, a new English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Yingying Liu. And I'm your other co-host, Ray Ma. Shout out to our listeners, AJ Cortez, Armand Zond, and Andy Kay from El Cerrito for weighing in on our Xiaomi debate last week. The bears outweighed the bulls on this one. This week, we have a similar ask. Tweet at us about your thoughts in today's episode for a chance at free Tech Buzz swag. That's Tech Buzz China on Twitter. And of course, if you enjoy listening to us, please take the time to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Facebook. Yingying, let me test you on your Chinese history here. What are the four major inventions of ancient China? That's too easy. Every Chinese kid knows this by like age five. The Sida Faming, or four great inventions, are paper making, printing, the compass, and of course, gunpowder. Ding, 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 ding. And the Chinese are majorly proud of these. However, even the last one of these great inventions, printing, happened at least a thousand years ago. But have no fear, the internet age has brought with it the new four great inventions of China. Yes, the Xin Sida Faming, or new four great inventions. And these are high-speed trains, scan and pay mobile payments, bike sharing, and e-commerce. Who came up with these, you ask? The Silk Road Institute of the Beijing Foreign Language University did a survey of exchange students in China and collected the results from the youth of 20 countries. Countries like Romania, Kazakhstan, and Mongolia. 
along China's new One Belt, One Road policy. Now renamed to Belt and Road. Anyway, it's too boring to go over what that policy is, but suffice to say, it's one of the most important pronouncements by President Xi since coming to power, and it figures prominently in Chinese media and business initiatives. Yeah, so these exchange students apparently voted for those four as the four new great inventions, and it quickly became a meme of sorts in China. What these students didn't realize, of course, is that China didn't actually invent any of these things, but it does have a dominant lead, mostly due to its large domestic market. There's just too much demand. And today, as you already know, we're going to be talking about one of them in particular: bike sharing, specifically dockless bike sharing, or as some people call it, flexible bike sharing. Bike sharing has been around as early as 1965, starting off in Amsterdam, of course. And one of the oldest dockless bike sharing programs, Deutsche Bank's Kala Bike, has been around since 2000. Obviously, back then there were no smartphones and no apps, so work through your phone using a series of authentication codes. Which is really not all that different from what Ofo, the Chinese bike sharing company known for their Xiaohuangche or little yellow bikes, rolled out initially. In fact, it was even simpler. It had a mechanical lock which opened a static code. That meant if you could remember the bike number in the code, then you could always open it without having to use the app. And that's what happened. Plenty of people abused the system and basically stashed away the bike somewhere hidden so no one else could find it, and just committed the lock code to memory. So for a while, in typical Chinese opportunistic fashion, Ofo bike sharing actually spawned a whole side industry of its own. Ofo bike lock password sharing. People created WeChat groups with spreadsheets of bike plate numbers and lock codes, which they shared with each other. I think most of these were free, but some people were a little bit more greedy and would charge you thirty cents or about a nickel in U.S. dollars for the lock code. For the bargain hunter, this is seventy percent or more off from Ofo's fees, which was one yuan or fifteen cents for half an hour. When an early stage investor was asked about this bug, he said, "It's not a bug; it's a feature." In an early stage company, do you think it's more important to grow distribution or revenue? Okay, I find that really hard to believe, but whatever makes for a good story, right? Yeah, I don't believe that either. What we made crappy locks so people could ride our bikes more? Anyway, we know now that kind of distribution over revenue thinking definitely came back to haunt them. Oh, for sure. But let's go back in time a bit to 2014, where there was no Ofo yet. Because I think the birth of Ofo is an important story. It explains a lot about why they became the company they are today. Let's do it, Yingying. So in 2014, the five founders of Ofo. Who are they? Well, the most important one is Dai Wei, the CEO who got his undergrad in finance from Peking University's Guanghua School of Business, which is either the top one or two university in China, depending on who you ask. Xue Ding was a classmate in the same program, and they completed their bachelor's in 2013. Zhang Siding was from archaeology, Yang Pinjie from international studies. And the only remotely technical person was Yu Xin, who was in the information sciences school. Dai Wei, Xue Ding, and Zhang Siding were members of the university cycling club, and it was during one of the club's trips freshman year that Dai and Zhang met. Remember now, it's 2014, and the notion of mass entrepreneurship, or 大众创业万众创新 was just beginning to show up in China. Premier Li Keqiang formally introduced it in September 2014 at China's Summer Davos. The government went all in. This became the refrain for the next several years in China. In China, the government's calls to action are heated in a big way. 
And we see that very clearly in venture capital investments in China, which jumped from less than $20 billion in 2014 to $30 billion or even $60 billion in 2015, depending on which source you use. Yingying and I were both on the ground as this was happening. And let me just say, it was crazy. So no surprise that Dai Wei and his friends became obsessed with entrepreneurship, specifically internet entrepreneurship, which is what the government was calling for in 2014. Just a few years back, this would not have been viewed very positively for five PKU grads. And so early in 2014, they got started and decided to combine their love of bikes with internet entrepreneurship. Later articles mock them for this period as mianzhuangye, which basically just meant that they were doing a startup for the sake of doing a startup. But even though it was quite bubbly back then, they weren't all that successful in the beginning, not in getting fundraising. For an entire year and seven months, they basically made no money. But I think this is an extremely formative period in the company's history because they didn't give up. And I think that persistence and pigheadedness carries through to today, for better or worse. Credit to them, though, they never strayed away from bicycles. They did mountain biking rentals online and received one order in two months. They did installment payments for high-end bikes and sold five bikes. They tried secondhand bike marketplaces and bike-related wearables, but nothing worked. Until they hit upon the idea of bike sharing. According to Dai, they only had about 400 yuan left in the bank and decided to regroup. He thought hard about his own worst customer pain point and decided that it was losing five bikes in his four years of undergrad. They thought sharing bikes would solve this problem. So on June 6, 2015, they convinced their first classmate to put his bike on this bike sharing platform. It wasn't yellow, it was a blue mountain bike. Probably because they realized that would be too slow, they began to make their own bikes. On September 7th, 2015, right as school was starting, they rolled out their first batch of bikes. On the first day, they had 500 registered users and 200 orders. On the second day, 300. By the 10th day, they had 1,500 orders a day. And in less than two months, they were getting 4,000 orders a day on just the Peking University campus alone. And then, legend has it, Investor Robin Luo from GSR Ventures happened to be on campus for an event and saw these yellow bikes. He immediately called for a meeting, recruited senior partner Alan Drew to look at the project together, and put in a $1.5 million investment. With all that money, OFO immediately expanded to other campuses. I've always wondered what the heck OFO stands for because Chinese people like to make up English words. But we found the answer as we were doing this story. It's actually just the pictorial representation of a bike with the two O's representing the wheels and the F representing the frame. Get it? I thought that's actually pretty clever. I guess from the get-go, the team wanted the product to be global, so they chose a name that could be understood the world over. Yeah, if anything, OFO was never lacking in ambition. I think that's a point we want to hit home. OFO, to me, represents the archetypal post-90s entrepreneur. There is no lack of passion with these teams, and they pride themselves as mission-driven. Dai Wei is fond of saying that he believes there will be a day where OFO can have just as much impact as Google does in the world. It's this attitude that can maybe explain much of what happened later, because obviously, as with anything in China, there's going to be a ton of competition. And we want to contrast the OFO founding team with the older and clearly more experienced Mobike founding team, most of whom already had experience in the transportation automotive spaces. One of them was the ex-GM of Uber Shanghai. And another was Pandaily founder Kevin's ex-colleague. 
But yeah, the teams clearly had really different DNA. Back to the story. We don't want to repeat OFO's many fundraisings and milestones here, because you can find that online anywhere. But basically, they have raised about $2.2 billion in less than three years. And note that their last disclosed valuation from 2017 is only $2 billion. This is a heavy CapEx business. Anyway, they have a ton of investors, which we won't name here. Importantly, they share a few major investors with another GSR portfolio company, DD. Wang Gong, the famous DD angel investor, Matrix, and most importantly, DD itself. As of late last year, DD supposedly owned 25.3% of OFO and had a veto vote in all financing decisions. It's second only to Daiwei's 36% at the time. Why did Didi do that? Well, it began as a hopeful and synergistic relationship. Didi would put OFO bikes into its system, further realizing its vision of multimodal transportation. OFO would have access to all of Didi's millions of users. But all of this, as we will soon find out, seemed to quickly disintegrate. Interested in learning about trends and innovation about tech in China from some of the leaders of the biggest Chinese tech companies right here in Silicon Valley? Our friends at Ping West are hosting their annual tech conference, SYNC 2018, on August 5th, and you're invited. Use code PANDAILY, that's PANDAILY in all caps, at SYNC, S-Y-N-C, dot pingwest.com for 50% off all tickets. They'll have speakers from areas such as machine learning, blockchain, and even film and game design. We'll see you guys there. You know how we mentioned the stubbornness of OFO's team earlier? Well, that kicks in here in a big way. As you already know, the OFO founding team were college buddies. This was their first company. They are very mission-driven. They really resisted outside control. So Didi had sent some adult supervision after their investment. The OFO team, however, wanted to do things their own way and refused to give these outsiders any real power. By the end of 2017, all the Didi placements had left and their relationship was pretty icy. OFO not getting along with their largest shareholder became the industry's worst kept secret. It was reported that Didi was vetoing all of OVO's attempts to fundraise, which Didi, of course, denied. But it doesn't really matter because Didi bought the assets of Blue Gogo, a bankrupt bike-sharing company, and started incubating its own bike-sharing solution, Qingju, which means green-orange, and whose bikes are teal-colored. Those launched earlier this year. Yeah, you definitely sense here that there's a sort of just dog-headed fearlessness of the OVO team. I mean, why would you go to battle with Didi? It was during this battle, though, supposedly, that early investors like GSR, who, as I've mentioned before, invested also in DD, abandoned the company and are reported, by the way, to have already sold out their shares. So in late 2017, with DD more enemy than friend and Tencent as a big shareholder in rival Mobike, OFO's only chance was pretty much, you guessed it, working with Alibaba. These weird conflicts of interest and veto rights really hampered OFO's ability to close any funding in 2017. But they were hemorrhaging cash, so they came up with a clever way to get some cash by using their fixed assets, i.e. bikes, 
as collateral and getting over $250 million from Alibaba without having to go through board approvals, or at least that's what's been reported. And we don't know what happened here, but after a year of rumors, OFO finally closed an $866 million fundraising led by Alibaba this March. This is most likely because Didi, even if they hated OFO, wouldn't want to stand in Ali's way. And this fundraising probably hastened Mobike being bought by Meituan Dianping for $2.7 billion in April. Although that was probably always going to happen anyway, since Meituan is Team Tencent. Anyway, Alibaba now owns 16% of OFO. But now let's switch gears, no pun intended, and talk about the deposit system of these bike sharing companies. Because many of you must be wondering, if OFO was needing cash for a year, how could they have survived for so long with no new funds coming in? See, most bikes in China are not tied to a credit card, but work on a deposit system. OFO, for example, charged you 199 RMB, or almost $50 up front, before you could take advantage of their 1 RMB per ride system. It was the deposits that allowed many of these bike sharing companies to stay afloat, and because there was not much transparency into what happened to the deposits, nor much regulation about it, we see most of the bike sharing companies using this money to fund operations. You might think this is ridiculous, but this is what happens in China on a regular basis due to the lack of an advanced credit system. If you check into a hotel, for example, you always have to prepay a deposit as insurance for incidentals. Anyway, two months ago, Beijing just formally announced proposed legislation regarding deposits for bike sharing. So in the future, the deposits will probably have to be kept in a separate account, but it's not law yet. And that's why we see in the over 50 bike sharing companies who've gone bankrupt that most of them have users complaining that they never got their deposit back. Probably all of them operated the same way. You mean basically misusing funds? Yeah, I do think using deposits is shady, but it wasn't illegal. And frankly, the business model was so difficult to get to work anyway. It's an entrepreneurial pursuit that leaves no room for mistakes. That's giving the entrepreneurs a lot of credit. I mean, you can also call bike-sharing companies 被资本养大的巨婴, which translates into giant babies that have been raised by capital, venture capital. For good reason, a few investors have done the following math. Based on estimates, an OFO bike could expect to be ridden 2.5 times a day, but I'll use three for illustration purposes. Three times. That's pretty close to the public stats that Daiwei has mentioned in April, which is 32 million rides across 10 million bikes. Yup, but that's in good weather. So let's optimistically use 250 days a year, even though we both know that in much of China, the northern half basically is probably a lot less than that due to the severe winters. So, okay, if you do three times 250, that's 750 yuan, or a little more than $100 by today's exchange rate, we know that the cost of each OFO bike has gone up from less than 300 RMB to higher now because they had to add smart locks to compete with Mobike. So less than a year to make your money back, but not when you take into account the fact that maybe nearly half of them are broken. Nearly half? Yup. A recent survey in Shanghai, one of the largest bike sharing markets in China, showed that just 60% of bikes were functional. That's not just for OFO, but industry-wide. So there's a lot of repair costs here. In fact, there's a joke that the real beneficiaries of the bike sharing craze are the bicycle repair mechanics. 
And of course, I'm not counting any operational cost involved in promoting or moving the bikes around to rebalance supply. That's just to have your bikes even be working. Yeah, I heard that too. But maybe the mechanics won't be complaining for much longer because the bike sharing craze does most definitely seem to be dying down. And the first sign are in the suppliers who seem to be dying in droves. In the so-called China's first bike manufacturing town, Wangqingtuo Village in Tianjin, supposedly a hundred businesses have already gone kaputs. Probably not all bike sharing suppliers, but a good amount. Although. I will caveat that headline with the observation that, frankly, Chinese businesses spring up out of nowhere and die suddenly all the time. It's totally not weird to go on vacation for a few weeks and find that when you get back, the restaurant you used to go to all the time downstairs is not only gone but has been replaced by a hair salon. Few people realize that while businesses in China grow at exponential speed, many of them also die at exponential speed. And maybe that's what Ofo is doing. Dying at exponential speed. Just this month, Ofo has also announced that it's pulling out of overseas markets. For example, Australia and the United States. It's announced a bunch of layoffs, and we don't know what will happen with the Chinese government. A state-owned paper recently criticized the oversupply of bikes inside of China. People are complaining that there's just too many bikes. Let's take the city of Shanghai again as an example. There are 1.7 million bikes now in Shanghai. Granted, the city has something like 25 million people, but that's still one bike for every 15 people. Experts think it should be more like 500 to 600 thousand bikes for the city, or what, roughly one every 50 people, not 15. That means the current market is two times oversupplied. Ofo alone has 700 thousand bikes in the city, and Mobike has over 600 thousand. Assuming all the small players die, they still need to cut down their supply by half or more, which might be the reason why Ofo has been trying to diversify its revenue stream in recent months. It's been aggressively pushing advertising on spikes. It's also started selling ads inside of its app, and even putting in news, video, and gaming features. Critics are seeing this as an example of just how deeply troubled its business model is. In China, you resort to gaming when you just can't figure out how to make money with your original product. It's the fastest cash flow when you've got traffic, which Ofo has. In May, it had over 28 million MAU. But don't think we're hating on Ofo here. I'm an avid user of bike sharing. I've used it in several European cities, and I just rode 100 miles this month on the local Cambridge docked bike sharing system, Blue Bikes. So we are not haters. But let's hear what our bike expert friend Carl had to say. Carl, can you introduce yourself? My name is Carl Ulrich. I'm the vice dean of entrepreneurship and innovation at the Wharton School. I'm the founder of the personal transportation company Zooter, and I've been following the space really carefully for more than two decades. I also spend a few weeks a year in China, and so I've been fascinated with innovation and entrepreneurship there. What do you think of the current obstacles facing the industry, though, like the ones we've been discussing today? Bike sharing in China has certainly encountered a few obstacles, but this is totally normal at the dawn of a new industry. I remain optimistic about the future of bike sharing. A lot of the apparent problems we see now are the natural result of the frenzy of competition that occurs in a new network-driven industry. 
Every enthusiastic entrepreneur and investor thinks that he or she can take advantage of an emerging opportunity without recognizing that with so many competitors, the chances of success of any one effort is really small. So we've watched a shakeout of competitors and excess supply of bikes. I think the situation will work its way out and will settle into a healthy and sustainable level of supply and demand. Okay, so Carl is an optimist on this industry, and maybe less so on any individual company. Anything to add, Ray? Yeah. Before we finish, I want to put things into perspective. One of the older and more established bike sharing programs in the world, Clear Channel's Smart Bike program, says they now have 20 million rides a year. A year. As we mentioned, as of a few months ago, Ofo is at 32 million rides a day, and they're in over 200 cities globally. A day, Mobike, by the way, has about the same. These two companies have fundamentally changed how hundreds of millions of people move around. So maybe bike sharing should remain as one of the four new great inventions, after all. Bike slash scooter sharing. Oh man, that's a whole other can of worms. We won't go there today. And plus, that's not really a big thing in China yet. But we do plan to have a follow-up episode on Mobike and others next week. There's a lot of drama in this industry that we just had to skip because we wanted to focus on just Ofo today. And Ofo is just half the story of China bike sharing. Maybe soon to be less than half at the rate they're going. Tune in next Tuesday for the rest of this story. We'd like to give a shout out to our partners at SubChina. In addition to our podcast here with Pandaily. They publish the excellent Seneca podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs on China, with journalists, writers, academics, policymakers, and business people. So while we only focus on tech, they really give you the entire overview. In addition, if you liked what our guest, Professor Carl Orick, had to say today, highly recommend you subscribe to his podcast called Launchpad from Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship, available everywhere you can find podcasts. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. We really enjoyed putting this together, and are always open to any comments or suggestions. And of course, if you enjoy listening to us, please take the time to leave us a rating review on iTunes or Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at the Pan Daily, at Tech Buzz China, and Ray's Twitter is spelled Ray Ma R U I M A. My Twitter is spelled G I N Y G I N Y. We'll be back here the same time next week. Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily is powered by the Sitka Podcast Network. Pandaily.com is a new English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producers are Carol Yin and Kaiser Guo. Our intern is Scott Dew.